This is The Uncharted Life with Jacob Lyles. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. I ha- This is episode number 13, and I would appreciate your feedback on the show. I have that new jingle that just played for us. Uh, tell me what you think of that. I've been working on the audio quality. Uh, every week, I definitely am tweaking things to try to make that a little bit better. Let me know how that's going for you. And especially if there's anybody that you'd like to see me have on the show as a guest, let me know about that. That is the limiting factor to uh, producing new shows, is finding people who will be fun to talk to and scheduling that time with them to record these shows. So give me some ideas and I will use them. Um, I'm excited about today's show. It's a topic that is dear to my heart, which is improv. Uh, My guest today is Diana Brown, who was my first improv teacher and my most frequent. I've learned a lot from improv about how to be creative, about how to collaborate with people and about how to just kind of accept the mess, accept the mess of reality, say yes and to it. Um, Improv puts me in a good mood, and it's a lot of fun. I like to say it's the most fun that adults can legally have, and I I think that's true. Um, So Diana and I, we talk about those kind of topics today. We also talk about how to be authentic during performance and how to get out of your head and really connect with the world around you including your scene partners when you're in an improv scene. But I think most of the topics we talk about are can be applied to improv or life in general. Improv is a bit of a microcosm of life in my experience. Now, Diana teaches at Leela San Francisco, which is an improv organization that has classes, including one-night drop-ins and uh, multi-week, more in-depth classes, um, both for beginners and more advanced people, uh, and they include musical theater. And they also have performing improv groups as part of Leela that will put on shows at the Exit Theater in San Francisco, maybe some other places. I don't know all the places that they perform at, but I've seen them perform at the Exit Theater a few times. Um Diana is not just a teacher of improv. She's also a performer. She is a fantastic performer. I've seen her perform before, and she has just a lot of emotional range, a lot of energy. It is a lot of fun to see her on stage. And it's a bit of an inspiration for me, really. And the reason I keep on coming back to her classes is I think Diana Brown has a bit of that special sauce that I want for myself. I I would love to be as free and fun and um, and collaborative as Diana is when she's on stage. Um, so she's actually part of a couple of performing groups right now. I just want to name drop those. Um, one is Binge Watch, which is a duo. Another is Past Our Primetime Players, which is a trio. And lastly, she's part of, let's see, the Armando Company, which I believe is a slightly larger group. Um, and if you go and take a date night to the exit theater and see some of those groups perform, uh, you will have a good time, my friend. Um, so let's see, I always feel a little awkward at the end of these intros, so let's just cut it off.
I can use my cliche. I'm going to use my cliche. Uh, without any further ado, here is my conversation with Diana Brown. Peace. And we are recording. Cool. Well, Diana, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, we're here in your improv classroom, so it's a very familiar location to me. <laughs> and I'm guessing to you, too. Well, I know to you, you as well. Yes. So maybe we could start out, um, I know you as my improv teacher, my most frequent improv teacher, um, and I've had delightful times in your class, and I've learned a lot. Um, well, that's always good to know. But maybe we could start out with um, talking about your journey into the art of improv. I would love to talk about that. Um, I come from a theater arts background, and one of the things I loved about improv is that you can play anything. You can play any one or inanimate objects, and so it increases your range. So I started doing it because I thought it would be fun to be able to play anything in the context of an improv scene as opposed to uh, traditional or even non-traditional casting. Yeah, I remember seeing you at uh, a show, and you were just very rapidly transforming between different things, like children and mice. You were, you were a mouse once. Um, <laughs> And uh, it was just a very rapid sort of shape-shifting going on. That's one of the joys of improv, is embodying all sorts of people and things. I mean, one of the examples I love to give in class is you can be a can of cream and celery soup on a shelf and have a huge inner life and have a whole point of view because everybody loves chicken noodle, but nobody loves cream of celery. Yeah, I love chicken noodle better than I love cream of, cream of celery. Celery. Is that is that a soup? It's a thing. Wow. Yeah. And it was always the last one on the shelf. If, if Good thing we don't have someone acting that out right here listening to me because I feel a little dismissive of cream of celery soup, but I'm sure it has its virtues and its desires and its goals just like we do. Just like chicken noodle. Just like chicken noodle does. <laughs> Who's like some kind of rock star. Everybody loves the chicken noodle, right? So how did you get into... You say you come from a theater arts background, so did you go to school for that? Yeah, I studied uh, theater arts. Um, I went to a conservatory in Arizona. It's part of the equity training company there, the Arizona Theater Company. Had some amazing teachers there. So three years of conservatory, and um, I decided to audition for a short-form improv troupe and was lucky enough to get in. And learned so short form is what you would see on television, like uh, whose line is it anyway? Great show, love it, love it, right? Yeah. And um, short form is affectionately called barprov in the community, and and we don't mean that pejoratively. It's just more of a bite-sized, gamey, uh, accessible to a comedy audience. And long form, which is what we teach you at Leela, and what I'm most comfortable doing, um, is more. I would say more like theater and less of a game. Is that your, your favorite kind of improv? I don't want to say I love one and dislike the other. I find long form the most gratifying. Okay. You can be dramatic, you can be surrealistic, as well as presenting a more traditional narrative, whereas short form, you really are required to just focus on the funny, which is fun too. I'm also part of a short form company. What's uh, were you always like an outgoing center of attention kind of kid? 
No, I wasn't. I was a very bookish, quiet kid for a really long time. And I realized that while that was an important part of me, I really needed to access that other side of myself that wanted to come out but really didn't know how. Um, and I remember having a conversation with myself when I was about 13. And I was like, okay. I took myself in hand and said, you have to get over this shyness. And slowly started faking it till I made it. Started taking theater. And now people have a hard time believing I was ever shy. So 13 was really the time when you started taking the theater classes and sort of turned around and like learned to overcome your, your shyness? Yes. As a, as a young person, I started at the young conservatory and then moved up to the adult conservatory later. Well, that sounds like a pretty bold move for someone <laughs> to take. Like, let's, let's do the exact opposite thing of what's natural to me just because I feel like I want to explore that side of myself. And um, it's kind of bold. I knew I wanted to pursue theater and I thought... Uh, being incredibly shy was probably not compatible with that. So how did you know you wanted to pursue theater? All I ever really wanted to be to start was a teacher. And by the time I got into the upper uh, junior high and high school levels, I became somewhat disenchanted with our public school system and decided to take my focus away from uh, teaching. However, teaching didn't let me go. And opportunities to teach would consistently come up. Um, fellow students would ask me to coach them or as I got into high school uh, and, and conservatory, I was offered opportunities to take on uh, coaching small classes of younger people. Um, fast forward in my life, I've always been something of a trainer. Even when I, my brief time in corporate sales, I would train other people. And um, as we went forward, I started working with physicians, uh, helping them communicate more effectively. And uh, as I continued performing, Leela invited me to teach drop-in, which we jokingly like to call the gateway drug. Uh, you take drop-in, and you get hooked, and you want to continue your improv journey. And that's sort of how I've ended up being a teacher. Wow. Yeah, so nowadays you have, are you, are you, you teach a lot of improv. I do. I yeah. teach improv uh, for Leela, which is one of San Francisco's premier um, improvisational uh, theater training centers. I teach here. I also uh, utilize improv for Leela with corporate work, where we do team building specifically customized to a company's goals. And then as an independent consultant, I'm also a performance coach, helping people to present better, just to have more confidence in their voice. Um, and I utilize improv within that context as well. Interesting. Uh, my own, my first time I was exposed to any improv was actually some sort of corporate, like team building in, at, at my company. Uh, I used to be a computer programmer at, right uh, at Coursera. And um, we had some team building exercise where I remember distinctly playing I Am a Tree. Oh, wonderful. Uh, was that the first, my first exposure? I mean, I'm getting the timeline confused because the other way, the way that I really got into improv was actually I read a book. Which one? Uh, Impro. Improvisation on the Art of the Theater by Keith, Keith Johnstone. And then I started doing the exercises in the book with my girlfriend. And then we, we uh, 
like we kept on doing that for a while and eventually we started taking classes. I think maybe I read the book first, then, then my first time doing improv with anybody besides my girlfriend was at the corporate team building thing and then I came to Leela. Oh, okay. I, I think that was kind of the way, I think that was the, the path. Um, and then I took a bunch of Leela classes. And you've enjoyed your Leela experience. I have. Wonderful. Now, um, I think that there is something like growthy about improv. Like I think it teaches you things and about life. Absolutely. What do you think? Absolutely. The, one of the best lessons I think uh, with improv is, well, two, I think, um, being comfortable with ambiguity. We're constantly asked to deal with the unexpected in life. And we tend to do this tightening up I call brace for impact. And when you do that, you get up in your head. And so you're not able to actively deal with what's coming at you. You're just up in your head and you're frozen. And so when you improv really teaches you just to be much more comfortable with the unexpected coming at you. And I think that directly relates to life. Um, because you're looser. You may not like the unexpected thing that's coming, but you have much greater facility to deal with it in the moment, that course correct in real time. The other thing is it helps you trust your voice and your voice coming from that visceral truth. Remember when you were a kid, you'd get that swoopy feeling in your tummy about something that excited you or a sense of trepidation? They say your tummy is your second brain. So I believe that, uh, <coughs> pardon me, my allergies are acting up today. I believe that getting in touch with that visceral truth uh, allows you to be in touch with your true voice and you're speaking from an authentic place, which is one of the reasons I like teaching for Leela because our mission at Leela is truthful artistic play. Yeah, let's see. So what was the first one you said again? Sorry. Comfort with ambiguity. Com comfort with ambiguity, okay. Um, so comfort with ambiguity and then your true voice. I would like to get more in touch with my true voice, which is maybe why I want to do more improv. <laughs> um, I do think improv has helped my presenting quite a bit. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, so it was interesting when you talked about um, that one of the things you do is training people to present better. Mm -hmm. uh, like I do think the two things are very much correlated uh, because a great presenter is someone that knows their stuff well and then they uh they don't need to adhere to a script and, and like and read off the page they can just kind of like talk from their expertise and then have like a roadmap for it where they're going and it feels really organic um and i think with improv i got the knowledge that like i could well in, a, in an improv scene or an improv story there is no expertise but um but i can speak extemporaneously like it's that practice in speaking extemporaneously and um, knowing that my body can come up with words or my subconscious whatever magical things going on when i'm not pre-planning like words are coming out and then i take that and i talk about something that uh is that i know something about where i'm giving a speech instead of a performance i don't know exactly what the maybe a speech is a kind of performance but it, it, it seems to be kind of the same thing like like you let the words come out and you yes. trust, like you're sort of, you're trusting yourself. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what you're doing. Your improv really helps you stay in the moment, be very present. We are so focused on the future 
and we're so busy ruminating on the past. And improv helps you stay right in the moment. And if you're in the moment with your audience and you know your information, so it's a certain amount of preparedness if you're doing a, a, a set speech, of course. However, that ability to be comfortable speaking extemporaneously, as you said, I think allows you to have that natural flow. If something comes up that you want to discuss because someone has a question, you don't feel derailed by that. You're able to... Um, to reach out to that individual and see and hear them and bring your expertise to their question without it throwing you, without a sense of, oh, this is not the way I planned it. Because what is well, how we plan it? It's kind of like they're a partner in your scene. I like that, yes. They just gave you a, a gift and you're going to respond. Oh, there's your improv training. I love it because we do take um, every offer is a gift in improv. Even mistakes are gifts in improv. Yeah. Um, if only mis I don't think I quite got to the point where mistakes are gifts in real life, but that would be a nice thing to feel. <laughs> well, you have to remember when they were trying to make, uh, well, when they were trying, when they ended up making super glue, they were trying to make a solvent. Hmm. So that yeah, was they a really did, didn't do a good job <laughs> there. <laughs> and yet it turned into something wonderful. Great. Um, I had something I wanted to say about the ambiguity piece. I am I'm I'm definitely like hitting a few walls today. Well, that's okay. Like, you know, you bring <laughs> yourself in the room with improv and whatever you're dealing with is what will end up in your work. Great. And that's part of your truth. We're just going to have to improv our our way through this a little bit. <laughs> so ambiguity. I think it's really frightening for people to be in a state of not knowing what's going to happen next. I think that very human trait uh, explains why there's so many uh, movies of books, and then musical cartoon versions of books. We like to know what's going to happen. We tend to be a little afraid of ambiguity. Um, and as improv teaches us to be more comfortable with it, we start to become more excited about what might come around the corner that we're unexpected, that we are not expecting. I misspoke. Yeah, there's something terrifying, or, or like there is some, some fear in improv. Or you're definitely confronting this fear. Like when you're in the moment. Absolutely. And, and you don't have a thing planned that you're going to do next. And somehow you, you're, you have to come up with something for the next moment. And people are watching you. Yes. Like it, it, do you ever find, find any fear, any, any terror? I think everyone who performs improv has had moments of fear. Um, Del Close, who is often referred to as the godfather of improv, is known for saying, follow the fear. So when you're pushing up against that comfort barrier and you're going into an area where you feel a certain amount of trepidation or fear in your improv, I'm not saying go walk in a dark, dirty alley late at night. That's, that's a different sort of pushing boundaries. Um, but when you're, when you're pushing up against that boundary of what you know and what you're comfortable doing and you're entering into an improv scene and you literally have no idea what to do, Make a choice. Do something. Make a, in, in improv, we do what we call space object work, which is we're miming because we're not using props. There's nothing up there but people and chairs. And uh, so you are relying on yourself and your scene partner. And if you are there to make your scene partner look good and they're there to make you look good, then something interesting will come out of it. Because ultimately, as human beings, 
we're compelling and infinitely fascinating. Yeah, just as we are. Scene partners, I have found to be a great safety net. Mm. Um, like in Improv 3, uh, at the end, we, we practiced a little set as if we were performing on stage. And I remember uh, it required one person from the group to just step out and start a scene, and then someone else would come and join them. Yes. And there was a few seconds and nobody was stepping out. And so I stepped out, but I had nothing to say. And so I just fell to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone else came out and we ended up having like, uh, we ended up having a scene about like, I was some guy that was tripping out of his mind at Burning Man or something. <laughs> and, and this guy was like trying to convince me that I was like going to be okay. And it was funny in context. And I had no idea where that scene was going. I was just like, uh, I'm going to fall down now. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it totally worked because uh, because I wasn't the only node in the group brain. Right. Um, so I mean, there's just something really satisfying about teamwork, about mm -hmm. like calling something into being that like no individual in the room could do. Exactly, and and having each other's back. That's why improvisers genuinely do say to each other before going on stage, "I've got your back," and they mean it. If your goal is to make your scene partner look good, and they're doing the same, something wonderful will come out of it. You know. I get the feeling that when we talk about improv, we are talking about life. We are. Um, and I always dream of, I think one reason why I pursue improv is I want to get better at life. And, and I dream of like living life like an improv scene. But I do forget that that does involve some fear. It's not all fun, but it can be a lot of fun M much of the time. Um, and even like turning towards the fear, like that's something that I've been like sort of pursuing lately is picking out things that I'm afraid of but seem meaningful and then going and doing those things um, and one reason why that's powerful yeah so like recently I did um, I did a, a wilderness survival training for a week in Alaska and um, oh my goodness yeah I was really afraid of it but I thought you know it would build me up it would build up my confidence it would let me know that I could do something that I've never done before so yes even up until the day before I left, I, I was really afraid. I mean, up until, yeah, at some point you don't get afraid. You're not, not afraid anymore. Like you're locked into the roller coaster and you're like, there's no way I can back out of it now. So I might, <laughs> might as well enjoy it. But there is like that, that fear. And I think that same heuristic of like follow the fear is what is drawing me back to want to perform improv in front of others, which I haven't done a lot of yet. It just seems like, growth is there because I'm afraid of it and it's not obviously bad like walking into a dark alley. <laughs> right. So, so it seems like a good place to go. It's a great place to go. And the, one of the things I love about improv is that it is one of the only art forms in which the audience and the performers are discovering the moment at the same time because we don't know what's going to happen, right? When we step on that stage, as you said, you didn't have any idea what you were gonna do, so you fell down. And there was your scene partner to pick you up. That discovery is so exciting for community. And I think that's one of the reasons it's such a popular art form and it's having such a, a wonderful um, life uh, in our country and in the world really right now, is that it is community building. People come together and do this, and the players are building community, the students are building community, the people who are just choosing to watch it are part of this. And they know they're part of something special because it's something they'll never, ever see again. Hmm. And only happens once. It only happens once. 
uh, unless someone videotapes it. But that's not the, <laughs> but that's not the same. <laughs> it isn't the same. It is not the same. It is not the same. Um, so I imagine that teaching people improv is an interesting emotional experience. What has that been like for you? What's been your highs and lows? It is such an amazing experience. Um, the thing I, you know, I am simply there to hold space for these people. They learn so much from one another, and I learn so much from my students. And to get to watch people come into their own voice and trust themselves is a remarkable experience. I feel very privileged to, to get to be part of that. I'm a little tiny piece of their improv journey for six weeks at a time. I love having students uh, in level one and then send them off to work with another teacher. And I have the privilege of getting a lot of them back for level three. And it's so important to train with a lot of different people because something that I say that may not quite land on you might make so much sense from another teacher or vice versa. You know, something that hasn't been working, maybe I'll be able to help unlock it. And that's exciting to be part of watching people grow. And I have a student that... She literally said uh, improv changed her husband's life. He's a different, happier person as a result of that. And you can't buy that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I certainly uh, I enjoy watching. I've, get, I've gotten to watch a few people grow just being part of the same improv classes as them. Yeah. Like, I can't see myself so much because I'm not spectating myself but i can see other people like i remember you from level one and and now i'm having a scene with you and it's so creative and quirky and fun to be in a scene with you um and it, it's nice it's, it's nice to be part of that i had a student uh very quiet very earnest young lady and um she came to class and she was about 20 minutes early and I was really glad because I got a chance to chat with her. And she said her boss sent her to improv classes to quote unquote get a personality. And I said, okay, um, I don't want to speak ill of your boss. I just want you to know you already have an awesome personality. We're not going to change you. That's not the goal of improv. The goal is to get you to trust your voice. If you're a quiet, quirky person, then that's your style. And I want you to lean into that and trust that. Everybody doesn't have to be an outgoing, outrageous person to be able to perform improv. Um, it, I still rely on the parts of myself that are shy and quiet for some of the characters that I play. Because I remember what that feels like. And that's part of my truth. So honoring your truth, honoring who you are, and bringing that authenticity to the stage is far more important than any outrageous character. Some of the most compelling characters are the most simple, like a can of soup. Yeah, there's something that I notice about like the improv ethos. It's it's this. It, it starts from this accepting place that yes, you and. don't need to be a certain way. Yeah, yes, and um, which maybe we could talk a little bit about for sure. people that don't know. Yes, yes, and but um, it, it is this thing that says um, that's saying yes constantly to who you are to the scene, uh, it's sort of a very nurturing, welcoming place. Yes. So yes and. Um, people have probably heard that. And what that literally means, as you were saying, is agreeing to the set 
of given circumstances, that we are who we say we are. So if you step forward in a scene and initiate that we are two opposing counsel on a case, I'm going to agree with that. I'm not going to say, we're not opposing counsel, we're both bears in the woods. So that would be ridiculous and it would be tearing apart the um, reality that you've put forward. So accepting the offers that others give you is the foundation of yes. And the and is building upon that with your scene partner. So you've agreed to it with yes, and and you're bringing something to help continue to build this. And the goal of a good improv scene is one line at a time, brick by brick discovery, until you've built something together. So there's two tensions in sort of improv philosophy that I'd like to talk about. Okay. I'm going to bring up the first one, and then we'll see if I remember to talk about the second one later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to hold to any sort of, you know, plan here. Well, it is improv. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be antithetical to the, to the to the prompt, I think. But one is like the the conflict between this this accepting yes and and trying to be better. Like even the idea that there's a better than what you did. Um, like, how do you hold those two things in balance? Well, I want to make sure I'm understanding you before I answer you. Okay. So um, clarify better for me a little bit. Um, I want people to enjoy me more when, uh, uh, when they see me perform. What is it you think you need to be better at? I need to be more flowy and like freeze up less. Ah, and okay. listen to my partner more. Yeah. Um, and to um, maybe to trust myself more. These are these are things that I, that think, I think you I'm, just answered your question. Okay. So oftentimes, and I can't speak specifically for you because I'm not inside your head. Oftentimes, when we get in trouble, and in by in trouble, I mean we aren't listening to our scene partner, or we're not as present as we want to be, or we don't feel in flow, is that adrenaline comes up, you know, and that fear comes up, and we stop listening and we just start wanting to fill the void with words and wanting to to feel secure and control what's happening. And by its very nature, improv requires us to release that control. You've probably been in scenes in class where you've stepped out with this idea. I know earlier you said you stepped out with no idea. <laughs> but I've seen you in class and I've seen you step out with really strong offers, um, strong scene initiations. And sometimes we have to let go of part of our idea because of the offer our scene partner puts forward. So if we're not listening, we're going to miss that. And one of the things that improv really helps us do, I mentioned earlier, being present. Part of that being present is that deep listening and noticing every little thing that you're getting from your scene partner. Like right now, you're nodding, you know, and if we just started a scene together where there's no spoken dialogue and you're just nodding at me, I could extrapolate that to mean a lot of different things. And I could start many different scenes based simply on the fact you're nodding. But if I'm all in my head and I'm look, not even looking at you, I'm going to miss that wonderful offer. And like right now, you have your hands on your hips, right? Well, then that could put you in a whole different character state in my mind, and I might extrapolate a whole different scene. So the more we're aware of what we're getting from our scene partner and how that's affecting us, letting that land on us, being affected by our scene partner, that I think is 
where the flow happens and where we start coming together as two people in a relationship in a scene, as opposed to, I just need to say something now because I'm starting to panic. Is that useful? Yeah, that's useful. Great. I guess the trick is to notice when you're not paying attention or to notice yeah. when you're in your head. Yeah. And then remember to get out of it. Give yourself a chance to just breathe. Mm, breathe. There's also some uh, research that shows if you start doing space object work, it gets you out of your head because you're focused on creating these invisible props and you're too busy doing that to, uh, mm -hmm. you're too busy doing that to, you remember that exercise. I had everybody come in and show us how they brush their teeth. In the I am, I'm invisibly brushing my teeth now <laughs> because I couldn't help it. <laughs> you were reminded of that exercise. I was, yes. Um, so in improv and in life, um, let, let's use improv to debug life a little bit. Okay. What happens when your scene partner sucks? How do you get around that? <laughs> <laughs> well, if your oh. goal is to make the other person look good, uh, sometimes justification will come into it. And nobody sucks. It's just maybe they're not as experienced as you, or maybe they're up in their head and they're not listening. And so if you can look them in the eye, and get them to look you in the eye and connect with them. You can use what they're giving you to try to get the scene back on track. Sometimes you can't save a scene. Sometimes it's just going to go down in flames. And uh, to quote some of my favorite uh, improv gurus out there, uh, Jet Eveleth uh, definitely uh, focuses on teaching us to be comfortable with failing spectacularly in front of audiences. Um, <laughs> And that's not to say do bad improv, but to say be a character willing to play for the loss and show that vulnerability. I, I like to liken it to, um, I'm going to go in the Wayback Machine and talk about Charlie Chaplin. He always played a character that, that lost. So when he even got a modicum of success, the audience would cheer for him. We love watching people honestly, vulnerably, pursue their objectives even if they don't succeed because they're honestly 100% going for it. It reminds me of one of my favorite improv exercises, which I call bad slam poetry, <laughs> um, which is funny uh, because it's really like just trying to improv slam poetry. But if you tell people that like to just try to be bad, like a lot of times they just end up being kind of good. <laughs> It takes away some of that. Um, it's just so intimidating to like be a poet, like right? be a spoken word poet, like improv it now. But and, to be a bad spoken word poet, yeah. you have all this license to just try. Yeah. You just, try stuff. Just like playing with Play-Doh or bricks, but with the words of your mouth instead. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Being an improviser does require you to be somewhat fearless. Our artistic director, Jill Eichmann, says that um, she, she says two things I love. She says improv is yoga for the inner critic, which is part of the reason we get up in our head. That inner critic is mm -hmm. talking at us and going, well, that's a terrible choice. That's stupid. Why are you doing that? Don't do that. Um, she also <laughs> says that uh, improvisers are like high wire aerialists. We're working without a net because we don't have words. We don't have a script. We have to make them up ourselves. Um, I do, you know, I do also scripted 
work as well as improvisational theater. And I have found that uh, improv makes even my scripted work better, which goes back to you talking about if you're delivering a speech, having that ability to be extemporaneous and be comfortable with the unexpected coming at you makes you so much more present and makes your work just so much more alive. Yeah. Even if you're giving a scripted speech and like a thought comes to you while you're giving it yes. and you can like pause from your prepared remarks to like tell that story or um, like to, to honor like what's coming up and what seems relevant within you. Like it just makes it so much more human. Absolutely. And you're by being able to do that, you're allowing the audience to what we like to call let it land on them. If you're giving a speech and you're just talking like this and there's no interruption and it just goes on and on and on. There's no time for the audience to receive it and create um, a reaction to it. So communication is two-way, right? We're not just talking at people. We're saying something we hope will have a desired effect on them. So without taking that pause, without leaving that room for their process, their participation in what you're sharing, you're not going to impact them in a way. And storytelling has become so much more important uh, in corporate communication and just in life. You know, we, we seem to be returning to that fire, so to speak, where we want to sit around and we want to share stories in an analog way with each other. Um, so the ability to uh, share a story and share our truth, whether it's with our clients or whether it's just with those in our lives, is going to have such a profound impact. I think improv really does impact life in a big way. Thanks. Thank you for that. Um, I, had, I had a thought on like another, okay, well, while we're like debugging life with improv mm -hmm. um, by using very strong allegories between improv and life, what do you do when you show up to perform and you're like really tired or out of it? Like that's that's a deeply personal thing. What do I personally do, or what does one do? <laughs> uh, what do you think's effective? What, what do you do? Well, um, because you're awesome. So whatever oh, you do, might. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm humbled by that, and 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 deeply delighted. Um, if I'm tired, usually it's because you know I, I haven't gotten enough sleep or something's weighing on my mind. So when I go into the theater and I start warming up with my team. Um, or my duo partner, uh, I'm in a, a couple of improv duos as well, uh, Ben Twetch. Uh, I've worked with Dan for a long time. So he and I know each other really, really, really well. And we can be like, okay, let's get, let's get in the zone and we'll just start playing. You know, we'll start literally warming up the kind of games that you are familiar with from class. Um, anyone who's ever been at camp might know some of these games. But we'll stretch it out and we'll, we'll uh, we will work on getting in the room together in terms of we'll start playing. We'll start seeing where each other's head is. If I'm tired, I might use that in my scene work. I might come from a point of view of I'm a, I'm a little tired or I'm a little tired of something. And I'll extrapolate from that. It is our responsibility, though, as improvisers to show up rested and ready to do our job, like with anything, right? So if I know I have a show, then I'm going to be as careful as I can to arrive prepared and ready so that I have something to give my scene partner and my audience. 
But sometimes, you know, you're just going to be tired. Doesn't I've traveled to festivals, yeah. right? And I've had to take a red eye and then perform the next day. And so then I will rely on a little bit of coffee and a physical warm-up and uh, emotionally just putting myself in the place of I'm here for these people. I'm here to give and I'm here to receive from my scene partners and my audience. And together, we're going to create something. Thank you for that. I, I, you know, sometimes in class I've shown up and I've been in just in a terrible mood and didn't want to do improv that day. But I had an improv class scheduled, so I went to it. And I remember, like sometimes, you know, we do a shakeout or we do like a big physical warm-up where I, like a baby in the fool. Yes. Where like Where like I just can't keep my dour face on. <laughs> and it like... Like there's something where I just want to like hold on to my sadness and then, uh, and then I just lose it somewhere, um, in, in the warm up, Um, and then I'm more flexible. Like, and maybe that sadness is still there. Maybe I still play a sadder character. Um, but it's, uh, it's not, it's not like me, like, like holding on to it and saying like, no, I don't want to let go of my sadness. Right. Cause that would be no, but. <laughs> Yeah. As opposed to yes and, which is why I think uh, it's so important that we do that in, in the level one classes and why our artistic director, Jill Eichmann, put that in, um, that exercise of the fool and the baby, to get you into that place of, with the fool, really, we're not asking you to look foolish. We're asking you to dance like no one's watching, be brave, be fearless, be a little outrageous. Again, follow that fear, step outside of your comfort zone. And the baby, not so much roll on the ground as a little tiny uh, infant, but to view the world like a child, like you're seeing it for the first time. So you're bringing a sense of fearlessness for the fool and a sense of wonder for the child. And that puts you in that state of play, which is what improv is. We don't say we're going to work. We say we're going to play. Yeah. Um, I remembered... Uh something about improv that it really scared me at first and then i found out like it wasn't that scary um it's this idea of like creativity with constraints yes uh like because i was worried that if i was really like being authentic and like letting myself explore that i would either like say something that would be terrible that would offend people or that like I would interact with another student in a way they didn't like, and it would be, I would get in trouble, especially like doing Baby and the Fool. I'm like, oh gosh, like if I'm really a fool, like, like, like am I going to get in trouble? But it turns out that like I feel like it's like actually possible to be pretty free within constraints. I agree. Like you can have it, like I know there's improv shows that are clean, like they don't. Absolutely. And, um, and so they're like, and you might think like, well, I curse all the time. Like in my real life, how am I going to be like free and clean at the same time? And I think it's actually like not as hard. It's not. As I thought it might be. Like that was something I was afraid of that. I'm well, not. and it's so important. Um, I think it's so important to feel safe on stage or in a classroom environment. That is such a big part of Leela's mandate to have a inclusive, safe play space for everyone, where everyone feels welcome. So we work very hard on initiating um, a, a conversation at the beginning of classes about uh, what makes us safe. You know, you don't pick anyone up. You don't touch them in a way that you wouldn't want your grandma to know you touch someone. Um, we are, and I joke, but we're very serious about it. We take very seriously um, 
respecting people as they want to be seen. So we are, we're clear to find out what is your preferred pronouns. We're clear to find out um, what level of touch is everyone in the group comfortable with. And no one is judged for not being comfortable. Like in cold and flu season, some people don't want palm to palm contact, you know, because you might take home a whole handful of flu. <laughs> Who wants that? So we try really hard to, to create a safe, inclusive space for people. So there is that creativity within, uh, within a boundary of safety. Yeah. Um, let's see. We're kind of getting, uh, I think we have maybe 10-ish more minutes. Um, you know, it's uh, it's like 155. Can we go to 205? Yeah. Okay. Um, I can cut that part out. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'll leave it in. Who knows? Uh. <laughs> Who knows? So, you know, I, I do have this philosophy of just leaving things in. Um, there's something beautiful about that. There, there's one thing, another tension I wanted to ask you about, and this is something I can't wrap my head around. I still have trouble with this. It's the uh, it's the tension between authenticity and like mm, bore and like wanting to be interesting. Oh, like, like, I love that. Like energy and authenticity or something. Like yeah. and I see you do this really well. Um, Again, thank you. Where where you can adopt many different personas and some of them can be quite fantastical or bombastic, um, but they seem to be to have some some amount of realness to them. Uh, but when I think of like being authentic, like I'm sort of like, I, I tend to get a little dead because I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm, f I'm afraid of being inauthentic. So uh -huh. I'm waiting for an impulse that feels like really, really right. Right. Um, they don't always come. <laughs> so how can you be, how can you square this tension between being authentic and wanting to be interesting? I think it comes down to serving the world that you're inhabiting in your improv scene. So it doesn't really matter what you're doing. It's the relationship. It's all about the relationships that you have in the scene. So if I'm playing um, a dragon and I'm having a conversation with uh, the dragon keeper and I'm really not happy as the dragon or he's having a hard day, I'm gonna be a dragon and I'm going to be really focused on his day, you know? So it's about playing this outrageous character for the truth of the moment. Um, and so that is not to say that authenticity has to be quiet or authenticity has to be small. Nor am I going to say that to be interesting, you have to be an outrageous dragon. You can be simple. Um, one of our instructors uh, here, Stephen J. Burnett, who... I think very highly of, I think very highly of all my fellow faculty. Stephen had this wonderful quote when a student asked him about well, wanting to be interesting in a scene. And he said, well, you can stand tall as a blade of grass and have a point of view and be interesting and deliver um, a soliloquy. You don't have to be outrageous or you don't have to be incendiary in order to be interesting because ultimately everyone is infinitely fascinating. That makes sense to me. Good. Yeah, I think when I am like trying to be authentic and I'm moving my fingers and quote marks here, um, <laughs> I think that I'm looking in myself and I think that disconnects me from the scene a lot of times. 
and it's yeah. not it's not no longer me in the scene it's like me sort of isolated from the scene like saying like what's my authentic self and and sort of right. being like super self-reflective um and and i think what you're saying is that like authenticity like in connection is the the secret to to like squaring that that con to resolving that con or dissolve dissolving that conflict i think that's true if your entire focus is on your scene partner then and making them look good and building on what they're saying and they're doing the same you can see how that comes together um, the other thing too is, you know, we want to be outrageous and we want to, we want to be entertaining. Um, so I'll often tell my students or people that I'm directing in a troupe, dare to be simple or dare to be dull. And I, I literally don't mean dull, but dare to be simple because if you start from a simple place, you can always add to it. If you start with something that's already rather crazy and over the top, then you're kind of painting yourself into a corner. And it might become, the scene might become far more about all the trappings of this outrageousness and less about an interaction between two people or two beings or creatures. And, and it's those, the, the relationship, what people yeah. often find most fascinating. Exactly. Exactly. That dynamic tension between two individuals. And Tension doesn't have to be a negative. We take that word and, and we always cast it in a pejorative sense, but uh, it can be positive tension. It can be happy tension. It can be, you know, let's say if there's a scene, like people love romantic comedies because you want to see when the guy or the gal or the two guys or the two gals or what have you, uh, or they and they, however people choose to present themselves, have that moment of coming together and, and have that agreement of we do love each other or someone's going to propose to someone um, or will they win the thing they want, you know? So that tension is what keeps us compelled to watch. And that's keeping that uh, kinesthetic energy between the two people taut. It's like a rubber band. You want to keep it taut. It means you're invested and everything the other person is saying means something to you. One of my favorite uh, improvisers, his name is Christopher DeYoung, and he loves he loves the visceral in his work. He loves to see scenes that are grounded and that are about just life and living and people honestly interacting with each other. He, he presents some of the most visceral and uh, dynamic tension on stage of, of anyone I've worked with. Oh, I'd really like to see him. Um, He's awesome. I, get, I have the pleasure of working with him in a group called um, the Past Our Primetime Players because we are of an age and many of the folks in the community are, you know, in their 20s and 30s. So we like to think of ourselves as the elders. <laughs> well, y'all must have did a good job to make the community, like it's a growing community and that's why I think there's so much, so many younger people in it because, um, you know, it, it was smaller before and, and then... It's kind of getting bigger. It's getting bigger. And, you know, there are so many different uh, schools of improv in the Bay Area, and they all are valid, and they all bring um, something to uh, the table that that people gravitate toward. And Leela, you know, our message is truthful artistic play. And our, I think that's why our community is thriving in the way that it is. Um, 
And that's, you know, largely to credit our artistic director, Jill Eichmann, and our uh, executive producer, uh, Christopher Eichmann. And they are a mom and pop, literally. You know, they're a couple uh, running this company, and they have a fabulous uh, little girl. And it's the two of them, and they've built this community that is, um, well, that you're a part of, and it's very supportive. However, there's no one right way. You know, I was on a panel a few years ago produced by Leela and uh, someone said, how do you, you know, how do you find your place? And the um, executive director of the San Francisco Improv Fest was on this panel, Jamie Wright. And he said, find your tribe, find those people you resonate with. So um, happily you resonate with Leela and I resonate with Leela. However, if, you know, that's not your vibe, go find it and play with the people that you feel at home with and that will impact your work. That's great advice. Thanks. I think that as I've been itching to perform, that's what I'm really looking for is one or more partners that I'll really vibe with. Yeah. And that'll be my tribe. Yeah. And we'll be whatever we are. And you'll discover that and it will change and let it change. Because like improv, it's dynamic. It's not going to be the same all the time. Um, in any art form that involves people, we have to leave room for our collaborators to grow and for ourselves to grow. I've, uh, I mentioned Dan and I mentioned um, Christy Young. I've worked with them on another project called Radio Star Improv uh, since 2006. And... We listen to some of the older shows, which you can listen to on the Radio Star Network uh, anytime you want. So go there and listen to some of our podcasts. Um, we listen to some of our earlier shows and the work we do now, and we see a difference. And that's because we let each other grow and change. And that's really, really important to your work. To that, be that's like another one of those life lessons embedded in improv, I think, is that like really good partnerships need to leave room for yeah. people to grow and change. And they do. I, I'm currently in a, a duo with a person that was a student with Leela. And I watched this person come up. And if I had always just viewed that person as a student, I would have missed out on the opportunity to be um, a peer with this individual. And um, Dominica Malcolm is her name. And uh, she also has created and produces a show called So You Want a Job that I've performed in, with festivals, at festivals with. And so that was such a uh, wonderful learning experience for me to watch this student come up and become a producer. And, and uh, I learn from her all the time. If I had only viewed her, oh, well, she's a student, and, and not allowed her to come up and, and grow and change and develop and, and step into these roles well beyond being a student, wow, what I would have missed what I would have missed. So we're about out of time. Okay. So I just want to leave uh, some room for like any last words if you want to um, talk to people listening to this podcast. Uh, what would you want to say to them? Well, thank you for your time because I know time is precious. So thank you for sharing your time uh, with Jacob and I. And is it Jacob and I or Jacob and me? I always get that. It's whichever one you like to say the best. <laughs> Whatever feels best How in the very mouth. improv of you. Um, play. Go out and play. Go out and enjoy your life. And be in the moment. 
and look people in the eyes. And remember, you're infinitely fascinating. That's a great bow. We'll tie that on. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Diana. Thank you.